The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. The reason I'm titling this sermon, Why is 1 Corinthians in the Bible? This is a question that every person should ask about every book that's in the Bible. I'm not saying that you should question whether it is the inspired Word of God. That's not the question at hand. That is another sermon entirely. How do you understand and know which books are inspired by God? All the books in our Bibles, all 66 of them, are inspired infallible words from the living God himself. But you should be asking, why is any book in the Bible there specifically? Why did God choose this book? Right? The Bible is over 2,000 years in terms of it took, you know, takes about 2,000 years to write it. There's all these different books, different authors, different circumstances. Um, it was incredibly expensive to write books in the ancient world. It was incredibly tedious to transfer them from one generation to the next. And so given these, these realities that not only is it expensive and tedious and hard, why of all the books that God could have given us, why did he give us any particular book? And then why did he give us 1 Corinthians in, in particular? We should be asking that. And one of the reasons that we want to look at this, uh, the, we're ending this sermon series on 1 Corinthians is because we want to answer this question for how we understand this book long-term in our life in Jesus. Here's just a couple of examples of how some people have attempted to answer this question. Paul writes a disciplinary letter to a fractured church in Corinth and answered some questions that they've had about how Christians should behave. Uh, this is a, a, I find this incredibly unsatisfying in a highly kind of academic response to why is 1 Corinthians in the Bible. Here's another example. A letter from St. Paul to the Corinthians, correcting errors in which they had fallen. Or in 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks to problems that exist in a disorderly church. Uh, this is maybe the least satisfying answers of why is 1 Corinthians in the Bible? What's a summary of the book of 1 Corinthians? Because it leaves this impression that uh, the church in Corinth was weird, messed up, and God just had to tell them off. Like, there's just, they wrote this letter. It's a bit of an understatement, right? Um, they write a letter to Paul, and Paul answers it, and God says, okay, here's some answers to your questions. Where do you buy your food from? Um, how do you guys keep your families in order? And, oh, don't do weird stuff in worship. Have fun. Like, that's not what the purpose of 1 Corinthians is all about, right? If we say that that's the purpose of 1 Corinthians, why it's in the Bible— we ultimately are saying that, really, God kind of gets annoyed with us when we've got problems. He's a little bit frustrated by our mess, and he really just wants to tell us off. And that's really not what 1 Corinthians is all about. We've been entitling this whole series, Good News for Bad Christians. And I think we get into the direction of why is 1 Corinthians in the Bible when we uh, look at the summary of the book from uh, the Bible Project. I know some of you are really big fans of that. The Bible Project says... The, the summary of 1 Corinthians is seeing every part of life through the gospel. That begins to get us into the direction of why is 1 Corinthians in our Bibles? Because there is something that is exposed through the book of 1 Corinthians that we all experience and we know is true, and yet we find help and hope through this book for the very messes of our lives, right? The reason we've entitled this series is Good News for Bad Christians is not to say, hey, it's a good thing that we're all um, horrible people. It's not celebrating that there's sin and weakness in our lives. 
it is helping us, this book is there to focus us on seeing that God enters into the mess of our lives and helps us by the power of who he is, right? This is ultimately, I have this little Bible journal that I've been using as we've been going through this series and is a, a bit of a visual analogy or visual picture I want each of you, I want each of us as a church to be able to walk away from this sermon series and say, I want to read the book of 1 Corinthians because I'm a mess and Jesus loves me. That's what I want us to be able to walk away from this book so that when in a year, in three weeks, in 10 years, you can say, you know what, I know that there's a book in all the midst of the mess of my life that God has written to help me to experience the power of his love. So here's a summary of what we're going to say this whole book is about. The whole book is about, or the, maybe the, the main point of the sermon, is that Jesus redeems the mess of our lives by the power of his love. That's what we would say maybe this whole book is about. Jesus redeems the mess of our lives by the power of his love. As we've been talking through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, one of the things that we keep pointing out is that 1 Corinthians 13 is the center point, is the, the high point, the gravity center of 1 Corinthians. And at the very end of 1 Corinthians 13, there is this very powerful statement that Paul says. He says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. All the issues of what was going on in 1 Corinthians can, in, in many ways, funnel down into this main issue that they had forgotten the taste, the pleasure, the goodness of Jesus' love for them. And because that had gotten off-center, it had been off balance in their life, they had completely messed up all these areas and they were a complete mess. Doesn't this happen to the rest of us? Like This happens to all of us all the time. I lose focus of Jesus' love for me for one second and I begin to kind of teeter over one way or the next, kind of like a, a, a spinning top beginning to kind of teeter around. I've lost the gravity of my life when I lose perspective on seeing the love of Jesus at the center point and so when Paul addresses this, he says, now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. He's giving us a bit of a paradigm for how he is speaking to getting, uh, putting love back at the center of our lives, back at the center of our hearts, both in our personal lives and in the life of the church. So when he talks about the faith, hope, and love thing, I think there's kind of a, a paradigm, so to speak, of faith being truth for, who, for our lives hope being the motivations in our lives, and love being the presence of God both in us and us with others. Now, what we're going to do for kind of doing a summary of this is to kind of see how Paul works this paradigm out to focus in as love being the center point of correcting these areas of mess in our lives. Uh, we're going to see how uh, faith or truth right, grounds us, how he uses that to ground us in various aspects of who Jesus is. We're going to see how the hope or motivations are changed by that truth and our trajectory and understanding of our life together in Jesus. And then he's going to, we're going to see how that love of Jesus emboldens and um, empowers our presence among each other. We're going to see this in various angles and various degrees. But what we're going to do is, I promise, as I've prepared this, uh, I don't intend to re-preach the entire book. So we're going to do kind of a, a very brief uh, overview over six categories that we kind of see the book break down into. I promise it's not going to be a two-hour sermon, but what we want to do is I want to look at six of these, and I want to focus really in on two of them that I think are very pertinent for us, especially during this time of 
uh, pandemic and COVID-19 and all these things that are going on. There's two of these that I want to just pull back forward to our attention for our life together in Jesus. So the first thing we want to look at is chapters one through four is all about how Jesus redeems our messy unity, right? All the mess of that could happen in a life together in Jesus. The first one is unity. This is chapters one through four. This is all where Paul says, look, I thank God for the grace of, of Jesus in your lives. I, I want to help you see that the gospel is the center of how we think about our life together in Jesus. Stop having all these celebrity pastors issues. And remember, don't be too focused on yourself. This is about Jesus, right? That's kind of what's going on in chapters one through four. Again, you want to uh, kind of delve back into that stuff? All those sermons are on our website. They're all free. Just go listen to them again. But the thing I want to pull out for you here in chapter 1, verses 4 to 9, I want to read this for you under this, this kind of summary of chapters 1 through 4. Now, remember how I was saying how that faith, hope, and love, truth, motivations, and presence plays out in how Paul kind of has this paradigm. So we're going to see this as we read through verses 4 to 9. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in speech and all knowledge, even as a testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, I just want to pause to see there is the reality, the truth, the objective dynamics of the faith of Jesus that has been borne out in their lives, right? It is true. God has given them. He has given them grace. He has done things among them that is a part of God's reality, his redeeming work, whether we like it or not. It's true. That's the faith dynamic. See verse 7. So that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's just pause there, right? There is a hope dynamic, right? There's clearly a future dynamic of waiting for Jesus, but it also speaks to our motivations now, right? We aren't lacking in any gift. God has given us everything that we need for our life together in Jesus, even amidst the mess of what it is to be a family in Jesus now. He gives it to us so that we can live in this love for each other, be motivated by when we see Jesus face to face, what does our life look like now to reflect that? Here he ends this paragraph, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I see here at the end of this, this dynamic of presence, it, love spoken of all through 1 Corinthians and the Bible is not this kind of like hallmark card, like I love you, have a good time. It is a physical presence. It is a giving of oneself. And we see that the, that the gospel's power in our lives is ultimately God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. God has, in his love for you, made you a part of his life for all eternity. So we see here this, this grounding. Paul puts us here at the beginning of this whole chapter, these one through four, chapters one through four, on unity to drive home this reality that these are the groundings that are going to help address all the dysfunction of and the mess of what does it look like to be a people that are unified in Jesus. So we're just going to pick up here verse 10, and just to, to see a little bit more deeply, I, I did want to spend some more time on this category because I am concerned about how we are going to be living out a messy unity given the context of our time right now. See, Paul here in verses 10... Chapter 110, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 2, and chapter 2, verse 16. I've kind of pulled these together in a paragraph. It should be on your screen. Um, for kind of seeing how Paul 
drives after this category of all of their dysfunction, right? Remember, they had celebrity pastors. They had the, you know, political parties that were infecting the church and how they were driving and living their life together. The weak were suppressing the strong, or the strong were suppressing the weak. The weak were getting embittered against the strong. And so Paul says here, kind of through these chapters, I appeal to you, brothers or brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Decide to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, for we have the mind of Christ. I'm concerned with all the stuff that's going on, with all the COVID-19, everything going on right now. There is, in the culture of America specifically right now, a great deal of fraction and disunity. There is a great uh, uh, chasm between different parties and people. I am concerned that there is a bit of a spirit of the age that delights in demeaning other people, that delights in making uh, light or suppressing or speaking ill of other people that we disagree with, that there's a spirit of the age in that dynamic of the political faction going on right now and how it could work its way into the life of our church or the life of any other church. I'm concerned that there are legitimate concerns, perspectives all across the spectrum. I'm concerned that we take those factions and we bring them into the church and we start speaking ill of our brothers and sisters in Jesus. In King's Cross, we need to be pressing towards this unity. I understand we have lots of questions one way or the other, you know, and I'm not even saying, like, look, you guys need to agree or disagree with Trump. That's not what I'm saying. But there is a partisanship that is going on in the spirit of our age, specifically around the context of this very moment right now, having to do this all virtually, that has us going after other people. And I'm concerned that that sort of knee-jerk reaction is going to infect how we begin to think about other people in our church that we disagree with. It is no different for Paul and their church back then. I am sure that, that the Apostle Paul had perspectives on the Roman government at the time that was, suppress, that was oppressing the church. I'm sure that Paul had perspectives on the economy of what was, you know, they had, I mean, we don't have actual slaves being sold right now, right? They had slavery back then, right? They had the Jews that were being uh, oppressed by the Romans. They had the Gentiles who were being rejected by the, by the Jews. He speaks to some of those things, but he doesn't speak to a lot of the political dynamics because of this very thing. G Paul says that he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was one of the most brilliant men to have ever walked the face of the earth, and yet he resolved that Jesus and unity in Jesus was going to be supreme above all these other opinions that he held. I am not saying that you guys need to stop having opinions about politics or anything going on right now. That's not even close to what I'm saying. We should be thoughtful. We should be engaged. We should be asking meaningful, hard questions. But we should, as a church community, be committed to having a unity among us that defines us because Jesus has saved us to himself against all other odds and has renewed us from the inside out and will renew all things. No president, no vaccine, 
No government policy, no quarantine will ever be the power of God to save you. Jesus Christ and him alone is our only power, right? Let's have opinions, let's be respectful, let's be concerned about those things, but Jesus Christ is our only power for life in Jesus and life in godliness with God right now. I want to just put this on your radar and then we will move on because we still have a lot to cover. Paul says in Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, remember we were just talking about these political opinions. I'm sure Paul had political opinions about being a prisoner for the Lord in a Roman cage. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We need to be eager to maintain unity, even when it's messy, even when we've got very strong disagreements with each other about whatever's going on with the COVID-19 situation, we need to be eager above all other things to maintain the unity of the Spirit of Jesus among us. That, I think, will be how we as a church stand out starkly to the culture around us that is continuing to demean and degrade and continue to be partisan about all the other issues going on. Yeah, we can engage those conversations, but in our church and in our culture, we will have a sweet, powerful unity that is only borne out because of the love of Jesus in our midst. So with that said, we are going to move on and we're going to continue to kind of go through this book. I promise the rest of these are not going to be as quite as detailed, but I feel like that is something that we need to be paying attention to. The next thing, chapters 5 through 7, the other ways in which Jesus engages the mess of our lives is that he engages our messy sexuality. Right, again, we're not going to delve deeply into this. We touched on this. We, we spent a whole great, uh, great deal of time on this, but this whole dynamic of faith, motivation, and love, or faith, or faith, hope, and love, or truth, motivation, and presence, you see this over here in chapter 6, verse, 20, verse 17 to 20. But he, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Right? This is true. This is a part of your faith. So flee sexual immorality. Every other sin is a person, a person commits outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Again, these are true things. So the motivations are what? Or do you not know that the Holy Spirit, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? So the motivation is, okay, I want to tend to and be pure with the body, the temple that the Holy Spirit resides in. You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body, right? This, how we use our bodies to love other people with appropriate affection, appropriate presence and touch, appropriate space and accommodation. These are born out of a healthy sexuality. And we're not going to delve deeply into this, but you are joined to the Lord by faith. You have his spirit in you, so live with a, a love for his presence in you and literally use your body in a respectful God-glorifying way with other people, right? I, I know we have all of us, some of us have kids, and we have to teach them how to use their bodies to love other people and not pounce and, you know, punch our brothers and sisters, right? Similarly, as adults, we must use our bodies as a way of loving other people and not taking pleasure from them at their expense. I wonder, in the days ahead and currently in our culture, if being a church of healthy masculine and feminine women, masculine men and feminine women 
that are Christ-centered, that use our bodies in a healthy sexuality, cultivates a safe place for those who have been abused and broken by the culture around us. There's no, there's no question that the sexual uh, dynamics in our culture are incre- increasingly degrading and God-dishonoring. And we all come from sexually broken backgrounds. But God has designed us and renewed us in Jesus to engage all those, that mess to help us to walk in a way that honors God with our bodies. With that said, I want to move us on to chapters 8 through 10. He redeems our messy culture. We see this in uh, chapters 8 through 10. If you remember, chapters 8 through 10 are all about you know, food sacrificed and idol, uh, to idols. Can you eat it? Can you not? Right? There is cultural dynamics of like, these are, this is food sacrificed to an idol that doesn't actually exist, but it's causing your brother who's weaker, who still sees it as a, um, a bit of a trigger point to his old way of life. Um, can you eat it? Can you not? And Paul basically says, look, your gospel life in Jesus should not be... The, the idol doesn't, isn't even real. This meat is on, sa- on sale. Let's go ahead and get it and eat it. His, his motivation is to say the culture of our life together must be love for the weaker people in our, in our community. People who have come from broken backgrounds that continue to have uh, cultural triggers, so to speak, about what, uh, what honors God and what doesn't. So he redeems our messy culture. Um, one of the things, I, one of the sections I want to pull together for is kind of pulling some verses together. Verse chapter eight, nine, and ten. Here's kind of this paragraph I've pulled together from these verses. But if anyone God, loves God, he is known by God, or she is known by God. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, so that I might win more of them. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. So whether you eat or drink, whether, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Right? It's undeniable that our culture is changing. While some are in distress about this, um, and there are certain elements that displease God, I take hope in this one reality, that this is my Father's world, and that Christ is the authority and ruler of all nations. And so however our culture is changing, we will continue to see in our midst people who are being saved out of, Satan, uh, out of the domain of darkness and sin and are being transferred into the kingdom of light, and they are the weak people among us that continue to need our love and support and help. So that whatever those dynamics are, whether it's from a, a drug addiction background, whatever it is, our love and heart is to prefer and to lean into their needs as the weaker brothers and sisters, right? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of their neighbor. And also hold true that whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We are a redeemed culture in Jesus to be a culture of love. The strength of our love is seen in how we cradle the weak and not in how we push them around. So as we move forward and, and, uh, and we ever wonder, well, how do I go back? What, how has 1 Corinthians helped me? When you rub up against those areas of, man, I, this is really inconvenient, or I would really rather do this own thing that I just want to do and not kind of make sacrifices for the weaker brothers among us, weak brothers and sisters among us, to be able to be cultivating a culture of grace and love, we need to be going back to chapters 8 through 10 in 1 Corinthians and say, okay, I need to check my preferences, whatever they are, 
so that I am not preferring my own desires, but I am leaning into others out of love. Okay, we're going to pick up here verses 11 through 14. Again, I don't know if you feel this way. This feels a bit of an odd sermon just in the sense of like, I would rather just kind of work through one passage at a time. We're working through the whole book. So here we're going to, verses 11, chapters 11 through 14. These are all about worship, right? This is about the Lord's Supper. How do you take the Lord's Supper? What does it look like? Chapters 11, chapters 12 and 14 are about the spiritual gifts, right? That's all the spiritual magic stuff that you guys are super excited about. Chapter 13, right in the middle, that's about the, the, the chapter on love. Peter preached that for us. Uh, it was helpful for me. I reached out to the church and just said, hey, what was your favorite part of uh, First Corinthians sermon series? And most people just said, look, talking about the spiritual gifts was super helpful. So I just want to give a little bit of some more time to this as we kind of work through this. But the spiritual gifts is this whole kind of like, is it spiritual magic? Like, what's going on here? Because like, they kind of feel like, like spooky and weird and like, what do I do with these? So it was helpful for us to work through these together and see how chapter 12, verse 7, grounds us in understanding what the spiritual gifts are all about, right? This, to each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We, we were talking about how this creates this kind of like two kind of markers for how we navigate through defining each of these spiritual gifts, right? It's a manifestation of the Spirit. Does it, does it have the character of the Spirit? Does it point towards Jesus? Does it draw people into his love? Does it show us the encouragement of the gospel? And then is it expressed in a way that's for the common good, right? Barking like dogs doesn't encourage the common good, uh, that, at least in my experience of life. I just, you know, maybe you come from a place where barking like dogs encourages the common good. I don't see that playing out in the life of the church, but that's how Paul is kind of playing this out for us. And you could even just kind of say, like, in terms of what's the truth, what's the motivation, and what's the, uh, the presence, how does that map onto these chapters, right? Well, you have chapter 12, which defines all of these spiritual gifts, right? It gives us, here's what, the, here's what God has given us in Jesus by the Spirit, these spiritual gifts. And then he puts in that chapter 13, the motivations. How are we motivated to use these things? And then chapter 14, how do we live these out? What does it look like to love other people with these spiritual gifts? So you kind of see this paradigm playing out in a big way. So what I want to do as we kind of work through this is just to simply remind us what the spiritual gifts are. I want to slow down a little bit. Remember chapter, seven, uh, chapter 12, verse 7, they are a manifestation of the Spirit. They show the Spirit's activity. And then they're for the common good. They're the flourishing and encouragement of other people. So what I want to do is I want to look through these gifts again. There's nine of them. And just kind of read through them and just say, look, the Holy Spirit is in no way shocked or somehow twiddling his fingers about how to use the church through this quarantine time to use these very gifts to strengthen and encourage each other in Jesus. He's not shocked. He's not surprised. He's not kind of like anxious trying to figure out how do I encourage people in Jesus now that they can't be together in an analog church or physical presence on a Sunday morning or in your small groups, he still intends to use these gifts, whether it's through a cell phone call or a, you know, a text message or a FaceTime or a video chat or whatever, figuring out creative ways to still use and deploy these spiritual gifts because spirit is still, right now, wherever you are and wherever I am, in a secret bunker. Right, wherever we are, um, the the spirit still presides between us. We are bound together in Jesus, and so the physical distance is not a deterrent for the spirit being able to use these spiritual gifts. So, with that in mind, let's just kind of go through these spiritual gifts again, and just ask the question: Holy Spirit, how can you 
prompt this gift in me to help other people grow in Jesus right now during the circumstances. So, remember, the spirit of uh, the utterance of wisdom. This is how we define that gift. The utterance of wisdom. Utterance of wisdom is a spirit-led counsel for a life shaped by the gospel that is given through the study of others in prayerful dependence on the spirit for their good and the upbuilding of the church. Sure seems like we could probably use some of that right now. How can the Holy Spirit lead you to study other people so that they might be specifically encouraged for what they should be, like wisdom for their life right now? With all the quarantine dynamics, some of us are single parents and got kids at home. Some of us are singles and just trying to fill the time. How can the Holy Spirit help you have specific, spirit-led wisdom to help other people in their life right now? Or the utterance of knowledge, very similar. A spirit-led understanding of truths for a life shaped by the gospel that is given through the study of others in prayerful dependence on the Spirit for their good and the upbuilding of the church. Or the gift of faith, a spirit-led conviction that God will reveal his power and act on behalf of his people in a specific way for the good of the congregation and the advance of the gospel. How might the Holy Spirit prompt in you the gift of faith? Not, not that, like, okay, God's going to get rid of the, the COVID-19 tomorrow. That, that's not what we're talking about. What would it look like for the Spirit to give you specific thoughts and Spirit-led faith for how God could be using this situation with COVID-19 for the advance of the gospel in Manchester and the surrounding areas? Specific things, right? Whether, whatever it whatever it is, for how we can be helping our friends and neighbors on the other side of this put on a job fair to help them find uh, specific jobs again, or specifically reach out to certain demographics or certain neighbors or certain neighborhoods, certain people that come to mind. How is God going to give you a spirit-led conviction that God will reveal his power and act on behalf of his his people in a specific way for the good of the church and the advance of the gospel? Another three more spiritual gifts. The gifts of healings, right? Various ways by which God reveals the holistic renewal of Christ's salvation and his coming kingdom for the congregation's witness to the gospel. And then the workings of miracles, the surprising and unexpected work of the Spirit through us and the church to uh, to experience the powerful victories of Christ in our lives, either emotionally, physically, or circumstantially. I just want to say... Any of those televangelists that you're seeing online, like I think his name is Kenneth Copeland or whatever, like blowing like wind on things to get rid of, the, of COVID-19, um, that's false teaching, and he's going to have to give an account to God for that. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about how can we be praying for gifts of healings among God's people and our neighbors. Maybe that includes um, physical healings, but what does that look like on the other side of this or through this? I'm thinking specifically of like mental health healings. Like, good gracious. We've talked about this the last couple of weeks. This, we are not made to be quarantined away from each other. So how can the Holy Spirit be prompting you to be praying against all the mental health struggles that we as a congregation or our neighbors are going to be experiencing? That's the Holy Spirit's delight to apply the victory of Jesus over Satan, sin, and death to our lives in miraculous ways. So let's be praying for that. What about the gift of prophecy here? Telling something God has spontaneously brought to mind for the encouragement and upbuilding of individuals and the congregation. We should be praying for this right now. How can God be prompting among us specific words spontaneously brought to mind to encourage and upbuild each other in the congregation? 
use your cell phone, right? This little, this little device right now that is the bane of many of our existences is God's gift to us during the social distancing time to be able to strengthen and encourage each other with spontaneous words to build us up in Jesus. Be praying for this. All right, so last three, and then we'll be moving on, right? One of the other, three of the other spiritual gifts, the ability to distinguish between spirits, discernment about the spiritual reality of something or teaching as to whether it's from the spirit or the spirits of the world for the health of the church. I just want to be encouraging us to be praying for discernment amidst all the information going on right now. Again, pulling into that whole idea of striving for unity, even when it's messy. How can the Spirit be strengthening us to find clarity amidst all the mess going on right now? And some of that's going to be requiring some of us to have the spiritual gift of discernment. Various kinds of tongues, prayer or praise and words not understood by the speaker, for their upbuilding with an intimacy with God and ultimately for the upbuilding of the church through these specific words of encouragement. We talk about this in the sense of sometimes in, in a certain sense, the Holy Spirit births this gift of tongues in us because we want to say something of encouragement that we don't actually understand what it is, but we need kind of a little bit of like a uh, venting ground to kind of like figure it out. And that's a gift of tongues that ultimately leads towards a prophetic word. I wonder in the midst of all these times, I mean, Nobody's going to hear you. I mean, why don't you start praying for the gift of tongues right now, and then God's going to give it to you, and then uh, just share the prophecy that comes out of it, and just don't worry about other people hearing the tongue. But what about the interpretation of tongues, being able to interpret that sort of stuff? Let's be praying for these things because the Spirit wants to use these miraculous ways of stirring our faith together in Jesus, even when we're in these socially distant, distance moments together um, because the Holy Spirit still binds us together in our life together in Jesus, right? Lord, how can you gift me? This is a prayer that we should be praying. Lord, how can you gift me to love your people empowered by your Spirit during these circumstances, right? This will require you to act. This will require you to reach out. But how is he going to continue to use these spiritual gifts during these circumstances to love other people? With that said, let's move on, and we'll kind of finish this out. Some of this is easier because uh, we've just recently preached 15, chapters 15 and 16. Chapter 15, he redeems our messy future, right? This is all about the resurrection. We preach this kind of leading up to Easter. One of the main points I just want to draw out of that for us is our hearts are probably all in a mess right now. I'm super grateful for the song that Bill wrote for us. Maybe that was a gift of prophecy. Um, but one of the things that we need help with is remembering that our future is so secured that it is grounded in the physical body that Jesus rose from the grave in, right? Our, our future is not what's going to happen to the economy, what's, who's going to win in November, um, how am I going to pay the bills? Our future is grounded in the true, living, breathing, blood-flowing body of Jesus Christ that exists right now. And so one of the things that we pulled out of 1 Corinthians 15 is that anxiety is imagining a future without God. Anxiety is imagining a future. It is creating and speculating this whole story that does not have at its very center the living, resurrected Christ himself. And that's to say, amidst all of our concerns about what the days ahead look like, this is one of the great gifts of 1 Corinthians for us, is that it grounds our today and our tomorrow in the resurrected body of Jesus Christ. Worst thing that can happen, we die. You know, that's going to be sad. But we'll be raised to new life with a physical body that will never get infected. So 
Uh, the future's incredibly bright, right? One of the things I like to say sometimes is, I'm a Calvinist. The future's incredibly bright. Like, God's in control. He's going to take care of it. Let's not worry about it too much. Let's take our hearts to task with the resurrected body of Jesus that our future, even though it's messy, our future is in his hands. Last thing we want to see here, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he redeems our messy mission. We looked at this last week, so I'm not going to cover a lot of it right now because it's fresh in our minds. But the thing that's incredible to me is that the book starts out, hey, Corinth, you big old uh, messy people, you're a part of the church. And it ends with this kind of affectionate, hey, just so you know, all these people, they send kisses and hugs to you. They love you. They're with you. They want you back in the mission with them. And even when we feel like all the circumstances are against us, like right now, how is God going to use us? Even all of the mess of all of our anxiety and stress going on right now, how is he going to use this for his mission? I don't know. But we know that he's continuing to work through us. He's going to continue to use us. At the heart of this passage, at the heart of this book, is chapter 13. And let me read this for you because this is my meditation on how this all kind of resolves in helping us love Jesus together because he loves, he has good news for bad Christians. This book's power in our lives stems from Jesus' powerful love. He is patient and kind. He did not come to throw around his weight or reputation. He was humble and gentle, lowly and meek. He did not insist on a selfish agenda, but he did insist on our love for him as the healthiest way of our renewal, of our repentance and knowing him and loving him and forsaking our sin to find joy and life in him, for true happiness and obedience to him. He responds to desperate people with compassion. He weeps over wrongdoing. He weeps over wrongdoing so deeply that he dies for our sins before God. And then in his resurrection, he prays for us in our sin and guides us out of our mess by his love through the church, through each other. Jesus bears and endures all of our mess, believing and knowing our renewal is ultimately in him and that our transformation will be complete when we see him when he returns. Love never ends because Jesus never ends. 1 Corinthians is this great book that gives us this confidence in the reality that God enters into the mess of our lives and renews each area of our lives, whatever the mess is, whatever the, the, the dirty laundry aspect of each of our lives is, because God loves to renew sinners. He loves to renew people who are broken and needy. And so I pray that as we kind of complete, we put a, we, we put a cap on this 1 Corinthians series, that you think of this book and you think, okay, when I'm, when I'm in a mess, when my life is in absolute disarray, or I'm confused and I have no idea what to do, I pray that you go back to 1 Corinthians week after week, year after year into the future and find that Jesus redeems the mess of our lives by the power of his love. Let's pray. Father, as we've looked at this book over this last year and a half and as we've now completed it together, I pray that we would see that our mess is not not a problem for you and that you continue to enter into our mess and redeem every aspect of our lives by the power of of Jesus' love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.